This is WMPG. I'm Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about courage, the courage to talk about the subjects that are the hardest to bring up, but that we may think about the most. This month's series is on the experience of incarceration, and I'll be speaking today with two people. The first is Candace Powell about her experience of bringing hospice services to the Maine State Prison. Then I'll be talking to Bobby Paisant, who is currently a hospice volunteer and an inmate of the prison. Candace Powell is the executive director of the Maine Hospice Council and the Center for End-of-Life Care. The mission of the Hospice Council is to improve access to quality end-of-life care through advocacy, education, and technical assistance. Candace founded the hospice program at the Maine State Prison in 2000 and now has 12 trained hospice volunteers, all inmates, who are looking after the dying and those with advanced illness in prison. Welcome to Safe Space, Candace. Thank you. Lovely to be with you. So I understand that you've spent 30 years of your professional life working in end-of-life care, and I'm curious what it was after doing more traditional hospice kinds of work. What was it that first inspired you to even think about the fact that people die in prison and don't have access to hospice? Well, I guess, uh, and one of the basic tenets of the mission of our organization is to reach out to those who are disenfranchised and underserved. And we do uh, everything um, based on identified need. You know, if I hear of a population of people that are not... um, easily able to access end-of-life services, then I collect, I do my homework, collect some data, present it to the board, and if they agree, then we wrap a program around it and invite partners to join us. Did you get pushback at first? I mean, were people worried about your safety or, you know, were there concerns about how this might go? Not from our board at all. I mean, I think our board members have trusted my judgment. they question, they ask for more data, which is a good thing. Board members should do that. But uh, if, and I think I always have had rational arguments and supportive data for why we do or think we need to do another program, an additional project around a certain population, and, and they have, blessed their hearts, respected that always. And so that's what we did with this. I mean, some people called. You know, we hear from people um, who have different opinions, as I guess is simply said. And people, some of them said they wouldn't donate any more money to us if we worked with this population and that how could we possibly do this. Uh, You know, my executive assistant has received some telephone calls that were less than... uh, kind. Um, So we just know that this is the right thing to do, and we have absolutely no no problem at all um, presenting rational reasons why Um, this is a standard outside the walls, and our work is not to judge, but to provide access to quality end-of-life care for everybody. So tell me a little bit about what the program looks like today. What what are you currently offering by way of hospice services, and, and how many people take advantage of it? Um, the program has grown by leaps and bounds. When we first started, you know, it was such a new concept back in 2000. And so it took us about eight years before we were allowed to actually start interviewing and, and welcoming men into a potential training program where we could spend um, 
many, many, many hours in intensive training with these men, helping them learn how to provide the kind of care that uh, provides quality of life and dignity to these men in the infirmary. And in in learning how to care for another human being, what these men have learned about themselves has been phenomenal. They have plumbed the depths of their own humanity, if you will, and found that tender, caring place and that person who's always been there inside them but never, for whatever reason, had permission to to surface. And the kindness and the gentleness and the the quality of care these men give men in the infirmary has really commanded the attention of administration, of, uh, you know, security, of other staff, and it's just been phenomenal to watch. I just step back and smile when I hear these men recount their stories, and it just warms your heart. I had the great fortune of spending the morning with you and the men, um, and really observing that firsthand, and that was absolutely my experience, too, is that while these men were giving so much, it was patently clear that they had been given so much by this opportunity. Absolutely. I want to ask about how the experience of dying in prison has been changed by bringing hospice. How was it before, and, and how is it now for, for those prisoners who do die in prison? Sure. Well, the, actually, the the people that you you need to ask to give you the anecdotes, of course, would be the men in, in some of the men in my classes who uh, used to be reside in the old prison in Thomaston, and they have many stories. But what I've heard is, and what the men say, um, is that what they are most grateful for being able to offer men in the infirmary is that no one, no one needs to die alone. And some of the anecdotes that I have heard, and again, they're anecdotes, and I was not there, but that uh, frequently men died alone. And the men wanted to reverse that um, approach to, to dying in the prison and ensure that no one else ever had to die alone. One of the things that really struck me is that I was there, and one of the men pulled out a Christmas card that he had received from you, mm-hmm. and he showed me the card, and the card was a card from the Heifer Project, Heifer Project International, yeah. saying that in his name and in his honor, a family in Africa had been given a beehive a full of bees and some, I think it was some geese and some chickens. Yes, yes. And it really made an impression on me because... I was there seeing the starkness of the surroundings, seeing these men and understanding how very little they have, mm-hmm. how, how truly, you know, they live with the bare minimum only. That's right. In fact, I'll, one story that really touched me is they were opening up this tear. I had, they had a torn piece of paper that was folded over from a magazine that had a little scent of cologne in it. Mm-hmm. And how, how treasured that was. That's right. Because they have no access to scent. It kind of gave, it was this little window into how little, how little they have. That's right. They're, and, they're incredibly creative. Yeah. Yes. And so my, I sat there, and my response was wanting to just run home and kind of give everything I have. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I did. It, it kind of, I was so touched by them, so touched by their generosity and sincerity. Yeah. Yeah. That it, it, it evoked this impulse in me to want to give them concrete things. Mm-hmm. And here you are. You know them very well. Mm-hmm. And what you gave them 
was the opportunity to give. Mm-hmm. And that really intrigued me. And I wanted to ask you, Candice, what is it you know about that? What is it you know about giving that is even more important than giving them stuff? Oh, oh boy. Um, giving them the opportunity to give of themselves is actually what heals all of us in ways that are impossible to frame in words. Absolutely impossible. And what the men and I have spent countless hours having conversations around, the gift of self and the gift of time. And when engaged in that kind of delivery of of time and energy and self, if you will, the rewards that come back to you are just immeasurable. I can explain that in words to the men just like I just did you for your listening audience. But until the men themselves engaged in that process and understood what I was trying to share with them in a very visceral way that touched their soul, they wouldn't have been able to understand it either. But in the doing of it, in the being of it, I I say to the men, you know, one of the things that we're not as human beings really very good at is just being with someone and being, and that generated the conversation around presence, which we revisit all the time. And once they started giving of themselves, and they would will tell you that before they came into prison, they were focused on self, and everything they did was focused on what they could do for themselves. And this program has given them a very different perspective on life. And what they do now is instead of focusing on what can I do for me, they focus on, gee, what can I give to make somebody else's life more comfortable, more pleasant, have a higher quality, a little more dignity, and be a little less lonely? And when they've seen what happens when they do that, that has what's helped them understand their own humanity and their own potential. There's no way you can teach that. You have to, I said to the men, for me to teach you how to care for someone else, I have to, and you have to be convinced that I'm sincere, I have to care about you. You will know that, not by the words I say, but you'll know that by the presence that I bring to this class. And I think really the modeling of that is what has taught them as much as anything. And then they, in turn, find that potential within themselves to do for others. And a lot of the men said the hospice program has allowed them to learn how to give of themselves without without thinking about themselves, to just do it because it needs to be done. 
And sometimes that's such a relief, isn't it? To not be so focused on ourselves. Oh, it really is. It takes a lot of stress off living. Actually, it does. Candace Powell, I want to thank you so much for being my guest on the show, but even more to the point, having watched you in action and seeing the impact. I didn't get to see the impact it made on, on people who are actually near the end of life, but I got to see the impact that you are making on the men who are serving them. And it touched my heart very deeply. I thank you so much for the good work that you're doing. Thank you, Anne. And if someone wants to learn more, or if they too want to give everything they have to the Maine Hospice Council, (laughs) (laughs) how can they reach you? What's your website? Uh, MaineHospiceCouncil.org. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Candice. Thank you. We're going to go now to part one of my interview with Bobby Paisant, one of the inmates who's actually participating in the program and is currently a hospice volunteer at the Maine State Prison. I am sitting with Bobby Paisant. He is a resident here at the prison, and uh, I guess prisoner would be the official term, technically. Yes. Yes. So I'd like to start by inviting you to tell me a little bit about how you got involved with hospice. How did you hear about it? What made you want to do this? Okay. um, Well, being in prison and having been here for quite a while, one of the unfortunate things about that is you see people come to the end of their lifespan. Um, For me, a personal friend of mine um, spent his last days up in the infirmary here at the prison under hospice care. Uh, He died of cancer. Um, His name was Frank. And I remember going to visit him in his last days. Actually, I, I got I was blessed enough to be able to spend um, his last night with him before um, he lost consciousness for the last time. Um, being able to see the hospice workers in action and, and the way that they um, just really cared for Frank in every aspect and, and, and did everything in their power to make him feel comfortable. Um, and, and, it really touched my heart, and and I immediately felt like it was something I could do. Even though I wasn't a volunteer at that time, Frank being my friend, I'd help help him out. I'd put lotion on on his legs and on his hands. Um, I'd give him water to drink to help keep him hydrated. I'd help feed him. I'd sneak in special foods for him that he particularly liked. Um, so it was it was something that I I. I felt like uh, I could do and wanted to do, and then um, I eventually, uh, when the opportunity presented itself, signed up to be considered, and luckily I was chosen. I see. So you requested it, and then I guess 60 people applied for 12 slots. Yes. So I guess you're, this is a very desirable role to have. It, it is. It is. Um, I don't think the 60 people actually knew what they'd be getting into, so I don't know how many would have made it. But just a little bit about my story, um, I wasn't approved on a security level to be part of this group at first. Um, Candace and the uh, chaplain at that time, Walter Foster, um, had both interviewed me, and Candace had made a decision that she wanted to include me in the class. Um, I have a history here at the prison. I've done a lot of years. I've been doing time here um, for the most part since 1987. Um, And I've done a lot of things in that time period to um, 
to cause security to have concerns about me, to, to put it nicely. And so they, um, out of concern, they didn't think I would be a good fit for hospice. And, um, and so I, I approached security and I spoke up on my own behalf and, and asked them to reconsider and Candace spoke up on my behalf and, and they did. And so as luck has it, I got to be part of the group. And what do you think it was that made them decide to trust you? I'm many things. Um, I'm not really a liar. And so when I when I think I when I went and approached them and, and had a very um, respectful but direct conversation about what I wanted to do and why I thought I was a good fit, um, I think I allowed them to see for themselves firsthand my interest and why I was interested rather than hearing it from somebody else and making some judgment. And so when I could personalize it, I think they were more open to me. So I'd love to know a little bit about uh, what actually brought you here. What, 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 I'm doing yeah. a 25, all but 18 year sentence uh, for robbery and aggravated assault. I got out of prison in, um, gen on January 7th, 2005, having done 16 years and two months for armed robbery. I got out with a lot of plans, um, but no way to make them happen. I, my release plan included me getting uh, released to my sister's house, which was a crack house. And that was my introduction to the street after a, over a decade and a half. I got into the drug scene pretty heavy. Um, and ultimately, what that led to this particular night. Um, I had money that was out of state because I'm trying to buy drugs and my dealer was out of state. And I was very, I was very bad off. I became, I was like a late stage addict. Um, I was down in Freeport visiting my father when I left. I was um, just, I just needed to, I, did, I just needed to be high real bad. As addicts, we call it getting right because I was, my equilibrium was so bad and I was just feeling terrible. And, uh, and to make a long story short, um, in one of the uh, factory outlet parking lots in Freeport, um, I saw a man walk into his car. I got out of the car I was in. Um, I walked up to him, uh, I punched him, I knocked him down. Um, when he came to, I was going through his pockets, I took his credit cards, his phone, and basically I used, I stole his credit cards to um, buy other things that I could trade for Coke. And you got arrested? Uh, a couple weeks later, I, I was arrested on, on a different charge of a... Um, I was driving around in a stolen vehicle the whole time, and I got arrested for that, got in a high-speed chase. Um, and next thing I know, um, this, is, this is my reality once again. And so you have a 25-year sentence that started. Right. I got 25 years all suspended except for 18 of it. So what I'm doing is 18 years, and uh, of which, with good time, I do 15. Um, when I get out, I'll be on probation, and with the, with the seven years that was suspended, that'll be hanging over my head. Oh, I see. So if you violate probation, you'll have to come back in and do those seven. Yes. I see. Okay. So you're here for a while, in other words. I've been actually. 
Yeah, I with good time, I have about six and a half more years left. I want to come back to your friend Frank and what you saw that night. Okay. Um, had you ever seen someone die before that? No, no, luckily, no. What was it that you saw that really touched you, that really made you want to be part of that? Just just the, the patience and the attentiveness to his needs. And um, and Frank was a, Frank, uh, God bless him, he, he is a stubborn man, a uh, Vietnam vet. Um, and he if he didn't like you, he didn't like you, and he didn't. He didn't mix words about it, mm. and uh, and so to see how the hospice workers were able to um, come from a position where where Frank wasn't sure what he felt about them to 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 work with him and to gain his trust and and, and in the end he really wanted them there, and uh, and just the way they treated him. I mean, you knew it was all the feelings that were involved and, and everything that they did, their actions. It was all authentic. So, so you knew happy. Frank, and you knew that he wouldn't put up with any <laughs> anything that wasn't authentic, basically. Exactly. I mean, there were there were hospice workers that he said, um, "Yeah, that guy there is not going to be sitting with me, not working with me." Which in hospice, we um, what we do is we celebrate that right of the um, of the client, for lack of a better word, to to have that ability to to dictate who who works with them, because in the end, it's all about their comfort, not anyone else's. That's great, and people have so few choices, especially here. Yeah. In my work with hospice outside, um, you know, one of the problems that, that we have with hospice is people often only get referred to hospice at the very end of their life. So we might have like 48 hours with somebody, right. at which point they're not really talking anymore, and, you know, it's it's very limited what hospice can give at that time. How long do you often have with people here um, to work with them as they're dying? Well, I think we have more of a hybrid program. Um, we have people that we've sat with and that, that have spent their last few days in hospice care and, and, and we've done everything that we've could to make them feel comfortable and, and make their passing, their transition of passing as easy as possible for them. Um, but we also have people that suffer from long-term illnesses that, that need constant palliative care, and we offer that to them too. Um, we, we have one gentleman who's up in the infirmary who, um, who's been living up there now for yeah, almost a couple of years now, and uh, we go up there every day. We feed him. Um, we bathe him when he needs to be bathed. Um, we put lotions on them because um, one of the things that that's very problematic for people that that have to live in the infirmary for an extended period of time is is that they spend so much of that time laying down, and so you have the things bed sores and everything. And so we try to take care of them as best as possible um, on a physical level, but also on a on an emotional and, and mental level too. We we work with them, and we we try to take them out of the infirmary. Some guys can come out, some guys can't. Um, but we we do everything we can. We exercise up there. We walk the halls. We um, we'll play cards. We, we um, some of us will bring our musical instruments and uh, uh, do do soft music uh, with guitar. 
I actually understand that you, the group of you of the hospice volunteers has created a hospice CD uh, of music that you've written about this work. Is that right? Yes. Um, we have a, a band that's called the Sounds of Comfort. It is the hospice band, and um, and some of the songs are original. Uh, Nathan Roy is um, is the guy that sings with me. He's he's a very very good uh, songwriter and and a heck of a singer. And we also have a couple couple wonderful ladies from um, the Andrew Scoggin Hospice House that uh, that come in and, and uh, Jamie Ellis she plays violin and Karen Flynn plays um, the guitar and also sings and they're really part of our family and part of the band and um, and we're really excited we're really excited about our CD release which should be in February February nineteenth you're releasing yes that. February nineteenth we'll be having a concert here at the prison which is another first. Um, to promote the release of the CD. Um, the uh, CDs, uh, basically, um, uh, the, uh, the, why we named ourselves The Sounds of Comfort is that's what we wanted to offer through our music. Um, most of the music is, um, comes from a place of pain, you know, and, and I think when people are trying to heal, that's what you really need to tap into. And, um, and I think that we... We've done a pretty good job at doing that, and we hope that uh, people will enjoy it. And when you say that's what we want to tap into, do you mean when someone's trying to heal, you want to help them tap into their own pain? Yes, and not only that, to understand um, that there's a connectedness between pain and healing. Um, I don't believe, and this is my personal thought, that you heal by ignoring pain. As a psychiatrist, I couldn't agree with you more. Oh, I'm glad somebody agrees <laughs> with me on something. <laughs> That's right. In fact, what you said to me as we were just chatting before this interview is, don't try to avoid the pain of my story. Like, this is a redemption story, and I want to talk about the painful part of it. Absolutely. I have great respect for that. Next week, we'll have part two of my conversation with Bobby Paisant. But before we go, we want to play you just a little clip from one of the songs from the Sounds of Comfort's new CD, which will be released on February 19th. Fire. 
This is WMPG. I've been talking to Candace Powell from the Maine Hospice Council and Bobby Paisant, who's a hospice volunteer at the Maine State Prison. If you didn't get a chance to listen to this whole show and would like to, or if you'd like to email the link to a friend, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com. You can also sign up there to get a weekly email with a link to that week's show. You can download us from iTunes. You can like us on Facebook. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, Maurice Lennon for the intro music, and Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely. Life will call with daffodils and morning glorious blue skies. You'll 